Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 and considering earthly shadows. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. Give attention to God's holy word. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make, uh, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank and glorify your name, and that you have caused your name to dwell in our midst. We pray now, O Lord, that through this time of preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit, you would expound to us what your name means in this word. And that in expounding to us and proclaiming to us the good things of Christ, we might be built up and edified in our most holy faith. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm sure that if I were to ask all of you in the room today, is Christ's sacrifice the best? And I trust that I would get the same answer from all of you. Yes and amen. The sacrifice of Christ is the best sacrifice. It's superior to all other sacrifices. All Christians must confess that the sacrifice of Christ is the best sacrifice because to fail to do so is simply blasphemy. It's to make null everything God has promised in His Word. So all Christians are agreed that the sacrifice of Christ is the superior sacrifice. It is the one final sacrifice for sin. However, there's vast disagreement when it comes to how the sacrifice of Christ benefits you. We may all confess that the sacrifice of Christ is the best. I imagine that uh, Satan himself recognizes that the sacrifice of Christ is the supreme, superior sacrifice. He tended not to go to the cross, didn't he? And where there is, uh, what our souls need is not only to know that Christ's sacrifice is the best sacrifice, but we also need to have that sacrifice brought home to us and applied to us so that his sacrifice becomes our sacrifice. And here there is vast disagreement. How is it that the sacrifice of Christ benefits you? Now, I won't, I won't go into the litany of errors. I'll simply try to do what bank tellers do. You know how bank tellers know the difference between the true and the real? 
They spend so much time holding the real that when they handle a fake, they immediately know it. The true way that Christ's sacrifice becomes your sacrifice is by faith alone. It is only by the exercise of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that His blood atones for your sins. That His death on the cross becomes your death. That His mediation becomes your mediation. It is only by faith that we lay hold of the sacrifice of Christ. But here, we have to learn how faith operates. Faith rises higher. Faith ascends by degrees. Faith grows step by step. Just as a mountain climber who's climbing Mount Everest cannot reach the summit in one leap, but he has to climb the mountain stage by stage, camp by camp over a long period of time until he finally attains the summit. Likewise, our faith ascends Mount Zion by stages, one stage at a time. In this passage, we are given handholds, as it were. You, you know what handholds are, I trust, that when you're climbing a rock wall or you're climbing on a mountain, you, you really have to pick your steps. You have to find a handhold that will support you so you can pull yourself up to the next one. Well, in this passage, likewise, we are given certain handholds upon which our faith can rest. And as we ascend up these handholds, we, we uh, walk up this path of Mount Zion and our faith grows by stages into a full assurance that Christ's sacrifice is the best sacrifice. Specifically, what this passage is going to teach us is that the sacrifice of Christ is superior to all others because of his person, because of the place of his ministry, and the purpose which it fulfills. The sacrifice of Christ is superior to all other sacrifices because of his person, the place of his ministry, and the purpose his sacrifice fulfills. We're going to notice these three things in this passage. Verse 3 deals with his person. Verses 4 and 5 deal with the place. And then verse 6 deals with the purpose. Verse 3 is his person. Verses 4 and 5 is the place. And verse 6 is his purpose. And so we give attention first off to verse 3. His person. Notice how the author begins this section of his letter. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now, in the context of the letter of Hebrews, we have just dealt with a large and very important section where the author has proved that Jesus Christ is a priest. Jesus Christ is a priest not of the order of Aaron, but of the order of of Melchizedek. 
Now that he's established Christ's priesthood, he's now going to move into talking about the sacrifice that this priest made. And he does it with our verse number three. Notice what he says. The purpose of a priest, the work that they do, is to offer a sacrifice. That's what priests do. The second half of our verse, the author draws a conclusion here. He says, therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Now, obviously, this one, the one that he's talking about, is referred to in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. Earlier in chapter 7, the author has proven that this one, this high priest that we have, is not a high priest of the order of Aaron. He's a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He belongs to a higher priesthood. And the superiority of his sacrifice depends upon the person offering the sacrifice. It depends upon the type of priest who's making the offering. This is going to come up later on in the book of Hebrews, but just remember what we've looked at in chapter 7. Christ is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. The Melchizedek order is higher than the order of Aaron, and therefore his sacrifice is by definition superior to all others. Remember also what qualifies him to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Not anybody can hold this priesthood. The Mormons are deceived and blaspheming, quite literally blaspheming, when they call themselves priests of the order of Melchizedek. Because the only way to qualify as a priest of the order of Melchizedek is as the author has proven in uh, chapter 7, verse 16, He's a, he, he is a, another priest who arises like Melchizedek, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Only one whose life can never be cut off can serve as a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Only one who has the power of life in himself can fulfill this office. This means, we've already looked at this in previous sermons, but it's important for the point the author's making here. This means only a divine person can fulfill the office of Melchizedek. Only a divine priest can hold this role. Only one who is fully God. And yet, at the same time, he has to be fully man. Because priests are appointed to offer sacrifices. Priests are appointed to offer sacrifices to God. God can't offer to himself. And so in order for the sacrifice that the order of Melchizedek offers, this divine person must also become fully man in order to fulfill the office of the priest of Melchizedek. And so in verse 3, the, the person of Christ, that he is the eternal Son of God, 
co-equal with the Father in power and glory, having the power of an endless life because of who He is, His sacrifice is superior to all other sacrifices. This is reflected in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 38. The question at that section is, why is it requisite or why is it required for the mediator to be God? There's various answers that are given. It's a very full answer. I encourage you to meditate on it this afternoon. But one of the things that they say that the mediator had to be God in order to give worth and efficacy to his sufferings. For the sacrifice of Christ, his sufferings, to be worthy of atoning for your sins, the mediator had to be God. And for his sacrifice to be efficacious, not merely to atone for your sins, but also to deliver you from the power of sin, the mediator had to be God. Now, ponder with me for just a, just a minute as to the importance of this. You know, when we're in presbyterial exams for ordination, one of the questions that often comes up is, how do you prove the deity of Christ? Now, this question can sometimes seem like old hat to us who are orthodox and not heretics. This can seem like a commonplace. We know the Lord Jesus is divine, it's in our creeds. We, we know that this is the truth. But you see, one of the reasons Christ must be fully divine, it's not just a contest with the heretics that we're concerned about. The, the reason the heretics must be refuted and the reason your heart needs to lay hold of this truth, your mediator is God in the flesh. Because if Christ is not God, his sacrifice is not worthy, and it's not efficacious. His sacrifice cannot save you from your sins unless he's God. Christ is God. Therefore, his sacrifice is worthy and efficacious. One other consideration here, why the mediator had to be God, and why his worth and efficacy depends upon him being divine. The one we have to do with is divine. The one who judges us is God Almighty. The one against whom we've sinned is the infinite, eternal, glorious, three times holy God of heaven and earth. His justice has to be satisfied. His bar has to be met. And the only way to meet the justice of God is with a sacrifice of God. Therefore, the mediator had to be divine. And therefore, his sacrifice is superior. This is reflected in several passages of Scripture. I won't encourage you to turn there, but just consider some of these. Hebrews 9.14, you might write these down and meditate this afternoon. Hebrews 9.14, the author speaks about if the blood of bulls and goats could sanctify the people outwardly, of how much more power is the blood of Christ, which he offered through the eternal spirit, able to cleanse your conscience to serve the living God. That's efficacy, brothers and sisters. 
That power to wash your conscience clean. You might say, Pastor, I've committed horrible sins. We all have. But the blood of Christ is efficacious. Because it was God in the flesh who offered the sacrifice. Likewise, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul the Apostle is so uh, amazed at this truth as he exhorts the elders in Ephesus. He says, Take heed over the flock of God, which you have been appointed overseers, which God purchased with his own blood. Now, think with me a little bit. We're, we're treading on the verges of eternity here. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, without body, parts, or passions. God himself has no blood. Yet Paul says God purchased the church with his own blood. He's referring to the sacrifice of Christ, who is God in the flesh, in one eternal person. That blood was poured out, and it purchased the church. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 4, we see that John is in the throne room, and there's this mighty scroll of God's will that nobody can open. And then he's weeping over this, and the angel says, Weep not, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome and is worthy to open the scroll. He turns around. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb as if it had been slain from the foundation of the world. This lamb is called worthy. He takes the scroll, and all heaven breaks out into a worship service. Because the lamb was worthy to take the scroll, and they praise the lamb in the same language that they praise him who lives forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, I want your faith to be fed. Christ is divine. That's why his sacrifice avails. That's why it's superior. That's why you don't need any other sacrifices. You know why the Lord appointed wine for our ceremonies and not blood? Because there is no more blood that needs to be shed. The blood of God has been shed on your behalf. And now our ceremonies, remembering that death, are ceremonies of celebration, not of mourning. Well, if that wasn't enough, Christ's sacrifice is superior, not only because of his person, but because of the place where he ministers it. Or we might say, the place where it is offered. Now, verses 4 through 5, we have to uh, put on our thinking caps a little bit. The, the author uses a very involved uh, form of argument. Because we need to pay attention how he proves this point. He does it by way of negation. He, he puts out there an idea, and he says in verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. This is um, sometimes called a counterfactual. Sometimes counterfactuals are helpful for us to clarify our thoughts. And so the, the author says, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. H however... The author has been at great pains to prove that he is a priest. Chapter 7, verse 17, for he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so if he was on earth, he would not be a priest, but he is a priest. 
And so how do we square this circle? We'll keep reading. He notes that if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. You see, on earth, there was already a priesthood ordained. A priesthood ordained according to the law. To to minister to the, as he'll say in the next verse, the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. This refers, obviously, to the priesthood of Aaron. That was appointed according to the law. And the priesthood of Aaron could only be passed on to the sons of Aaron. You had to be a genetic, blood, direct male descendant of Aaron and all of his sons down through history. Earlier in chapter 7, the author reminded us, Christ is not from the tribe of Levi. He's not a son of Aaron. He is, in fact, from the tribe of Judah, the son of David. And so if we were dealing only with the earthly worship, if we were only dealing in the earthly shadows, if he were on earth, he could not be a priest, but the Psalm 110 tells us that he is a priest, and the author has proven he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so what gives? Christ's ministry is a heavenly ministry. His ministry is not on earth. His ministry is in heaven. Just as the author told us in verses 1 and 2, we saw this last week, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. There's a little bit more to look at in these verses before we begin to unpack this some more. Notice also, he says here in verse 5, these priests, the sons of Aaron, they minister the type. These are a copy and a type of heavenly realities. Now, I think it might be helpful to define types. Sometimes we can run wild with this idea. A type in the Old Testament is a person, a ceremony, a um, building, in some places even a location, that is symbolic of what Christ will come and accomplish. We just read about one of the chief types in the Old Testament. Solomon, the temple builder. Solomon is a type of Christ in that he's the son of David who builds the temple. Christ told his apostles when they confessed, you are the Christ, the son of God. Christ said, I will build my church. So Christ fulfills the type of Solomon. Likewise here with the temple, Moses was commanded in verse 5, Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so when Moses was given the tabernacle instructions, he was given a great vision of the heavenly throne room, perhaps similar to the throne room that John was privy to, perhaps similar to the glory of God that Ezekiel was shown at the beginning of his prophecy, perhaps similar to what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, Moses was given this vision of the heavenly sanctuary. And then God told him, make sure that you do everything according to this pattern. 
So Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple, which is based on the tabernacle, are copies of heaven. They are types and shadows. The Levitical priests, therefore, served only the earthly shadows. They were not the ultimate ministry. They were not the end of the priestly service that God had appointed. They were only serving the type and the shadow. But as Paul the Apostle says in several places, places, but primarily in Colossians 2, 16, let no man judge you in meats or drinks or Sabbaths, the ceremonial law of Israel. Let no man judge you, which are shadows of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The substance is Christ. The reality is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Other passages that you could look at, John 2, 19, Matthew 12, 6, Christ actually tells the Pharisees, there is a greater than the temple here. I am one who's greater than Solomon, and I'm one who's greater than the temple. Therefore, based on some of what we've seen here, Christ is a priest who offered his sacrifice to serve or to minister in the heavenly reality, not in the earthly shadow. Now, there some objections may rise to this, but pastor, he died on earth. He did. He came down, dwelt among us, was crucified on a real wooden cross on a real hill outside of Jerusalem. He was pierced by real weapons and real swords of the Romans. Spears, actually, of the Romans. He did die on earth. But you see, Christ's and his cross at uh, uh, the Uh, Golgotha, the, 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 the place of the skull, when Christ was offering his body on that cross, that cross was, as it were, the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard of heaven. I hope you understand my imagery because this will feed your souls. In the tabernacle system, there was the bronze altar, the altar that Solomon prayed in front of. There was the bronze altar. And it was upon that bronze altar that the priests had to offer their sacrifices before they could enter into the holy place. Likewise, the cross of Christ was the altar on the threshold of heaven. When Christ was dying on the cross, he was not looking to the temple in Jerusalem. He was looking to the sanctuary on high so that he could enter with his people into the presence of God forever and ever. Christ's sacrifice is a heavenly sacrifice. This sacrifice is superior because it reaches all the way up to glory. It reaches all the way up to the mercy seat on high, to the true presence. The lamb that was slain has ascended the throne and sits now at the right hand of God. So Christ's sacrifice is superior. Now, here's the difficulty. This is what I mentioned at the beginning. This sacrifice is ours by faith, not by sight. 
this sacrifice is not something we can go and look at. You and I were not alive in 33 AD or whenever it may have been precisely when the Lord died. We can't go back and look at it. We can't hear his living voice crying out, my God, my God, have mercy upon me. We can't hear him shout with a great voice, it is finished. And see the reaction of all the Jews and the centurion right there at the foot of the cross. But you see, you don't need to see it. You don't need to witness it with your eyes. The power of this sacrifice, the way that this sacrifice becomes yours is by faith, and it can be in no other way because the power and the efficacy of it is in heaven above. And so we have to lay hold of this by faith. As we lay hold of the sacrifice by faith, the Holy Spirit works in us and cleanses us by the power of the blood. And that's how this sacrifice becomes yours, even though it's in heaven beyond our sight. There's a very practical application here that I want to give you a pastoral warning. Paul the Apostle told us that we walk by faith and not by sight. It is chiefly in the history of the church around the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that this principle is violated. Because if you're like me, Christ has loved you. Even as Paul the Apostle said, he who loved us and gave himself for us. And since Christ has loved you, you love him. Rightly so. And our love to him means we want to be with him. We want to lay hold of him. We want to commune with Christ But Christ is hidden from our eyes and sometimes our love and zeal for Christ can lead us to make images of Christ. It can lead us to draw pictures of Jesus. To make movies of Jesus. I saw the passion of the Christ before I understood God's word better. I shouldn't have seen it. That's not the kind of thing you need to put in front of your eyes. Why? Because you don't need to see the sacrifice of Christ. You need to believe in the sacrifice of Christ. You need to lay hold of the sacrifice, which the reality of it is in heaven, by faith and not by sight. And when we transgress this, the church degrades. You know, it's one of the things that the Reformers pointed out in the downgrade of the Christian church from the earliest centuries until the days of Calvin and Luther, about 1,500 years, give or take. They noted that throughout church history, what you see is an ebb and flow. Sometimes the church is healthy, sometimes she's sick as a dog. And by the time the Reformers come on the scene, the church was down almost at the grave. And what they pointed out was that when the church begins to make images, she's unhealthy. 
When the church begins to make pictures of Christ and of the cross and of the saints, and they begin to fill the church with all these pictures and images, they're departing from the Word. Preaching has declined. Images increase. Faith is very weak and unfed. And so when faith is unfed, the Christian heart, maybe sincerely, wants to lay hold of Christ in some way, and so we draw a picture. We make a statue. We craft an icon. We produce a a, a feature-length film. We put a miniseries online because we want to lay hold of Christ. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you and warn you as your pastor. You must lay hold of Christ by faith, not by sight. Now here's an encouragement. Christ is more glorious than you or I or Mel Gibson or Michelangelo or any of the great artists can imagine. Christ is beyond anything you can think or imagine. As Paul the Apostle writes in the book of Ephesians, now unto him who is able to do abundantly beyond what we ask or think. As God says in the book of Isaiah, my thoughts are above your thoughts. Do you think the glory of Christ is beyond your imaginations of his glory? I think so. And so just as a pregnant couple will wait until the birth, sometimes, to meet their child, we also have to wait until the new birth of all things for us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ as he is. Brothers and sisters, walk by faith, not by sight. One last, I I feel like I need to, I was debating whether or not to make this application on this section, and, and I think it may be helpful, especially to some of the college students who attend our friends across the way at Liberty University. What I've just described about faith and sight and the superiority of Christ's sacrifice is also related to the view known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a view of, of, of world history that teaches various things, but, but one of the key things that dispensationalism teaches is that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and that Christ will come down and sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and reign with a reestablished temple and reestablished sacrifices with reordained Aaronic priests. Brothers and sisters, I love my dispensational brothers and sisters, but this detracts from the superiority of Christ. His death is superior and it replaces all the shadows. We don't need those things anymore because we have the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on David's throne and ministers in the true temple. I'm happy to talk more about that after if if you have more questions on that topic. Finally, Christ's person, the place of his ministry, and his purpose make his sacrifice superior. We find this in verse 6. The author writes, he says, But now he, the Lord Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Now notice the logic of what our author is saying. He's saying 
Christ's ministry is better. By ministry, he means priestly ministry. That's what we're talking about, is a priestly ministry. And what, what is a priestly ministry? Well, fundamentally, it's to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so the sacrifice of Christ, his ministry, is more excellent because it accomplishes a better covenant and better promises than what Aaron and his sons had. Notice he says, first, it's a better covenant. He's going to explain this more fully in the next section of chapter 8. In fact, if you just look, you can turn the page, uh, 7, um, pardon me, verse 8 through verse 12 is the single longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. This is the single longest quotation from the Old Testament. He's going to explain more fully what the better covenant means, but that's for next week. Uh, week after, sorry. We'll be looking at the second commandment next week. He's going to explain what that means, but, but here are some things that this certainly does mean. A better covenant, Hebrews 10, 18. The author writes and says, uh, he requotes this passage from Jeremiah, starting in verse 16, Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Brothers and sisters, the new covenant is better because in the new covenant, there is no more reminder of your sins. Your sins are fully washed away through the covenant that Christ has accomplished through his sacrifice. This is reflected in Micah chapter 7, verses 19 through 20. Turn with me. Micah 7, 19 through 20. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Old Testament. Because what Micah is doing is he brings all the covenant imagery, he brings it all together, and he speaks about what God is going to do in the new covenant. Micah chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. Micah 7, 19, he says, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is probably a very precious verse to you, but I want you to understand the full impact of what Micah's saying. He's using covenant images. The very next verse, he talks about Jacob, Abraham. Verse 15, he says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you wonders. Now, what was the great event in the exodus from Egypt? It was the crossing of the Red Sea. And at the crossing of the Red Sea, Israel passed over on dry land, and their enemies were cast into the depths of the sea. And so what Micah is saying here is that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his priestly ministry, is going to defeat your ultimate enemy. He's going to cast your sins and iniquities into the depths of the sea. Your enemy is not the Egyptians. Your enemy is not the Democrats. Your enemy is not Russia. It's not China. Your enemy is your own sins. And in the covenant that Christ secures, he defeats all of those enemies by casting them into the sea. 
Isaiah 54, 4 through 10, there's another uh, example here of the greater covenant that Christ has secured with his cross. Isaiah 54, verses uh, 4 through 10. I'm just going to read this passage and understand Isaiah is speaking about the new covenant in Christ. That's what this is referring to. Isaiah 54, verse 10, he writes, Do not fear you, uh, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. You ever been convicted of sin? This is what it feels like, isn't it? A rejected wife and a widowed woman that nobody wants anything to do with. And the Lord says, I called you when you were in that state. I called you like a woman forsaken. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn, O sinner who trusts in Christ, God has sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. The mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall never depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy upon you. A better covenant indeed, brothers and sisters. And so Christ secures a better covenant for us. It's also based on better promises. For the sake of time, I won't won't spend a lot of time on this one. Simply to point out, when he says that the, the promises that Christ secures are better than the promises that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, and all the rest enjoyed... He's referring to the outward form of those promises, not the substance of those promises. As Presbyterians and Reformed Christians, we believe what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 7, paragraphs 5 and 6. We believe it's an accurate summary of the Bible. And what they're summarizing there is they say that the covenant of grace is administered under different uh, forms. In the Old Covenant, the same covenant of grace was administered with types, shadows, sacrifices, and the Aaronic priesthood. When Christ, the substance, appears, the covenant of grace is administered in the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and prayer. But it's the same covenant. It's the same substance. David trusted in Christ according to the form of covenant that he had. Abraham trusted in Christ according to the promises that he had. When the book of Hebrews says we have better promises, it means that our promises are clearer and fuller 
and more open. And so this is what he means by better promises. You know, uh, one way to understand the promise that he's referring to is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to move through this very quickly, so if you want to keep up, go for it. But it's Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off or assured of them, embraced them and confessed them. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they had had an opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 12, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, God promises to dwell with you in heaven. And in Christ, he secures that promise. The sacrifice of Christ secures this covenant and secures these promises. Therefore, it's a superior sacrifice. Now, I want to encourage you as we prepare this week to partake of the Lord's table next week. There's a lot of food for thought for your faith in this passage. When we partake of the Lord's table, we are, as Paul the Apostle tells us, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to take the bread, which represents his body that was broken, and the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. Meditate on and recognize why the sacrifice of Christ is superior. The, the amazing simplicity of the Lord's Supper is testimony to the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ. We don't need outward show. We don't need smells and bells. We don't need lights and guitars. We simply need God's promise, His ordinance, and faith wrought by the Holy Spirit. That is a profound sacrifice, brothers and sisters. Let me put it to you this way. The reason that sacrifice of Christ is superior is because God shed His own blood to bring you to heaven. God shed His own blood to bring you to heaven. And remember, this is enjoyed by faith. It's not enjoyed by sight. This is enjoyed by faith. And so these are good things to meditate on as we approach the Lord's Supper. When you partake of the bread and the wine, you are partaking of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we partake in an unworthy manner, we will be guilty of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the same degree that God blesses us because of the death of His Son, to that same degree... He will punish those who despise the death of His Son. I say this to encourage you, that you would draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ because His death is effectual. It is able. 
to cleanse you from everything you've done. As I said at the beginning, faith grows by stages. Faith grows with the youth, uh, with, with the use, pardon me. The darling of our faith is Christ, our high priest. But brothers and sisters, I hope you've caught a glimpse that in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a mountain of glory. There is a magnitude of grace and glory that we can't even see the top of. It reaches all the way to the third heavens. It is impossible for you to ascend this mountain in one step. Here, the Holy Spirit has given us firm handholds for our faith so that step by step, doctrine by doctrine, we may finally reach the summit, our Father's house. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we praise you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love that you've shown to us in him. We pray that by your spirit you would seal these things in our hearts, that our faith would grow strong with the use in the Lord Jesus, our high priest. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.